Okay, good morning. This morning we're continuing on the uh, life of Joseph um, in Genesis 41. Um, <clears throat> we've seen Joseph's dreams, we had the uh, cupbearer and baker's dreams last week, and today we're into Pharaoh's dreams. Uh, for those of you familiar with uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, I sort of feel like I should be in a Elvis costume or something up here this morning. So Genesis 41, we're going to skip a bit in the middle, but I'll lead you through that bit as we get there, um, starting at verse 1. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile, when out of the river came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. Then the thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dream, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man an interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Sarah, Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answers he desires. So Pharaoh recounts the dream to Joseph that we just read, and we're going to pick it back up in verse 25. So verse 25, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that come up afterwards are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and famine will ravage the land. The abundance of the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason that the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that this matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in cities for food. 
This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used in the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt, so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all his officials, so Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Thanks, Lee. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We're looking at two chapters this morning, actually, Genesis 41 and 42. But before we do that, uh, let's ask God to open up his word to us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Joseph. We thank you for what it teaches us. I pray this morning that you would be encouraging us by your spirit. You'd be reminding us of the truths that we find in here and that uh, yeah, ultimately, we'd be built up in our faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the other day, I was reading about a movie called The Man Who Sued God. It's an Australian film starring Billy Connolly, came out in 2001, totally fictional. Uh, the title of the film is essentially the plot. But while I was reading the Wikipedia article on this film, uh, I discovered at the bottom of the article a link to another page called lawsuits against God. Turns out that there are people who have actually sued God in real life. Uh, In 2008, there was a US state senator called Ernie Chambers who filed a suit against God, seeking a permanent injunction against God's harmful activities, all part of an effort, apparently, to publicize the issue of public access to the court system. Uh, The judge argued that God couldn't be properly notified because he didn't have a fixed address, But Ernie Chambers argued that God's all-knowing, so of course he's been notified. Uh, But his case was thrown out. Uh, But in 1970, actually, there was a lady who actually won a lawsuit against God. Her name was Betty Penrose. She sued God for $100,000 for his negligence in allowing a lightning bolt to strike her house. And when God failed to show up in court, she won the case by default. Now, I don't recommend doing a Betty Penrose and suing God. Uh, You might win the case, but it's not going to work out for you in the long run. Uh, But I think we can all feel a bit like Betty sometimes. Uh, Sometimes our lives are just hard for no particular reason. It's through no fault of our own. It's through no fault of other people. There's no one we can blame and it just feels like God has failed to show up. But unlike Betty, that's not a win, that's bitter disappointment. And the big question you're asking in that situation is, where's God? Where is God when my life is hard for no particular reason? Now, I've seen a lot of people in my life in these sorts of situations react in a lot of different ways, namely two. Some people shake their fist at God and accuse Him of being incompetent and having no control over their situation. Like Betty, they accuse God of negligence, of accidentally forgetting about them. But there are other people who react completely differently. They hang their head 
in shame and sorrow and just assume that God is punishing them. They assume that because of something they've done in their past, God has deliberately abandoned them. Those are two completely different ways to react to the random hardship of life, and some of us can react like that too. But whether we are shaking our fist at God and accusing Him of losing control, or whether we're hanging our heads and assuming that He's deliberately abandoned us, that He's punishing us, the question is the same. Where is God? Where is God when my life is hard for no particular reason? And that's the question we're asking this morning as we look at the story of Joseph. We're in a four-part sermon series uh, on Joseph at the moment. We're up to week three. And for the last two weeks, we've also been asking the question, where is God? But we've been focusing on situations in which people have been clearly at fault. So two weeks ago, we looked at where is God when life is a mess, when our lives are messy as a result of our own sin or others' sin. So we saw how Joseph was the innocent victim of his brother's sin. Uh, They were jealous of him, so they sold him into slavery in Egypt, and they covered up their sin by lying to their father about what happened. Then last week, uh, we looked at where is God when life is unfair, when we're the victims of injustice. So we saw how Joseph was unfairly accused of misconduct in Egypt. He was thrown in the dungeon, even though he had been promoted by Potiphar for working hard and acting with integrity. Uh, But this week, we're looking at the question, where is God when life is hard? Specifically, when life is hard for no particular reason and through no clear fault of our own. And we're picking up the story where Joseph's in the dungeon, and it's through no fault of his own. And even though he had originally been thrown into the dungeon as a result of injustice, at this point in the story, it's almost accidental that he's still in there. You see, last week we saw that while Joseph was in the dungeon, he interpreted the dreams of his fellow inmates, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. And when Joseph interpreted the cupbearer's dream and told him that he was about to be restored to his position, he specifically told him to mention his situation to Pharaoh to get him out of the dungeon. But the cupbearer totally forgot about Joseph. Like he forgot about him for two whole years. Now, if I was in Joseph's position at that point, I'd be tempted to shake my fist at God. I'd be asking, Where's God? Has he lost control? Has he totally forgotten about me? That's certainly what I'd be asking. Joseph's whole situation looks like random bad luck. But God has not accidentally forgotten about Joseph. God's in total control here. Look what happens next. If you still have your Bible handy, open up to Genesis 41, or you can follow along on the screen. Verse 14, uh, Joseph is suddenly summoned to Pharaoh's palace. Why? Pharaoh has had a dream, verses 1 to 7. No one can interpret it, verse 8. And it's at this point that the cupbearer who is with Joseph in the dungeon suddenly goes, in verses 9 to 13, Oh, wait, I know a guy. He might be able to help here. So he tells Pharaoh about Joseph. So Joseph cleans himself up. He goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says in verse 15, I hear you can interpret dreams. Uh, But Joseph knows that he needs God's help to interpret dreams 
Pharaoh's dreams. He can't do it by himself. And so at this point, Joseph says something interesting to Pharaoh. He says, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So Pharaoh tells Joseph his two dreams in the verses that we skipped in the Bible reading, verses 17 to 24. In my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I'd never seen such ugly, lean cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first, but even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. Then in my dream, in my second dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Uh, And so, with God's help, Joseph then interprets Pharaoh's dream for him. Verse 25, Joseph tells Pharaoh that both the dreams mean the same thing and that God is revealing to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then Joseph explains the dreams to Pharaoh. Verses 26 to 31, the seven good cows and the seven heads of grain, the seven years of abundance and prosperity that God is about to send on the land of Egypt. But the seven bad cows and the seven bad heads of grain that swallow up the good ones are seven years of really, really bad famine that will follow the seven years of abundance. And the reason that the dream's given in two forms, Joseph tells Pharaoh in verse 32, is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Joseph then tells Pharaoh in verses 33 to 36 what he should do. He should find a discerning and wise man, put him in charge of Egypt to prepare all of Egypt for the seven years of famine during the seven years of abundance. And it's at this point in the story that God turns Joseph's life around. Pharaoh says in verse 38, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom has the Spirit of God? And then he says to Joseph in 39 and 40, since God has made this all known to you, There is no one so discerning and wise as you. You will be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Verse 41, Pharaoh then puts Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. Verse 42, he puts his signet ring on him uh, and he dresses him in fine robes. Verse 43, and he has him ride as second in command in a chariot. And verse 45, he gives him a wife. And Joseph, verses 46 to 49, as second in command of Egypt, uses the next seven years of abundance that God sends to collect an absolute bucket load of grain for the years of famine that are about to come. Finally, finally, after all these years of hardship, after two years in the dungeon waiting, God turns Joseph's fortunes around and he gives Joseph huge wealth and success and prosperity. And Joseph knows that it all comes from God. Look at what he calls his kids in verses 51 and 52. Verse 51, 
he calls the first one Manasseh, which means forget, because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household, that is, all my brothers. And verse 52, he calls the second kid Ephraim, which means fruitful, because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So it seems as though God has finally come through for Joseph. And it's tempting at this point in the story to moralize everything that's happened to him. It's tempting to say that the moral of the story so far is that when life is hard, you just have to be patient and wait long enough and eventually God will remember you and He'll give you wealth and success and prosperity. But that's not what this story is about at all. It's true that God is the one who completely orchestrated Joseph's prosperity in Egypt, but what Joseph doesn't realize at this point is that God has made him prosper in Egypt, not so that he might forget his family, but so that he might save his family, which becomes clear later on. And that means, in order to make Joseph prosper in Egypt, God orchestrated Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt in the first place. And Joseph, of all people, should know that because of Pharaoh's dreams that God helped him to interpret. God is the one who sends not just the years of abundance, but also the years of famine. God is the one who sends both. And that means God is the one who is in control, not, of, not only of, our, of the prosperity in our lives, but He's also in control of the hardship. Now, that doesn't seem to be a comforting or reassuring thought when life is hard. But consider this, if God is in control even when life is hard, if God is the one who sends the years of famine in your life, then it's not as though He's forgotten about you during those years. God hadn't forgotten about Joseph while he was in the dungeon. God had put him in the dungeon in the first place. And that means God was with him in the dungeon. He was with him the whole time. He was in total control while Joseph was in the dungeon. So if we belong to God, if we're one of His people, when we're in seasons of hardship of our lives, which many of us are, and we're asking the question, where is God? We don't need to shake our fist at God and accuse, of, and accuse Him of forgetting about us and accuse Him of not being in control because He is in control. He's in total control. And we can be confident that God's in control when life is hard because while Jesus was on the cross, God was in total control. While Jesus was on the cross going through the hardest period of His life, God hadn't lost the reins. In fact, God had orchestrated the whole thing. Listen to this prayer of some of the very first Christians that's recorded in Acts chapter 4. They say, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Jesus died on a cross because God, by his will and power, had decided beforehand it should happen. And that means that God was in total control when Jesus was on the cross. And if Jesus, if God was in control when his own son was dying on the cross, then he's definitely in control when we're going through hardship in our lives. And that's the first thing we see in this story. God is in total control when life is hard. God's in control. But this raises a difficult question. If God's in control when our life is hard, could that mean that God is punishing us during those hard times? Could that mean that God is making us pay for something we've done wrong in our lives? We turn to the next chapter, chapter 42, and we see that very question being entertained. Uh, See how it plays out. Just when Joseph thinks he's forgotten about his family, uh, who should rock up on his doorstep, in verses 3 and 5, but his family, uh, his brothers, minus Benjamin, looking for grain because the famine's so widespread that it's uh, reached them too. Verse 6, Joseph's dream from chapter 37 comes true. His brothers come and they bow down to him because he's the one distributing the grain. And he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. So from this point on, Joseph takes it upon himself to punish his brothers for what they did to him. He accuses them of being spies, verses 9 to 16. Uh, He throws them all into the dungeon, verse 17. And then three days later, verses 18 to 20, he tells them that they can all go home except one of them, Simeon. And when they come back, they must bring the youngest son, Benjamin, with them. Uh, Joseph's being really cruel to his brothers here, which is pretty understandable. Uh, These are the same guys who threw him in a hole and left him for dead and then sold him into slavery. So Joseph's wrestling with a lot of bitterness and resentment in his heart towards his brothers here for what they did to him. But also, Joseph doesn't realize that the whole reason God has made him prosper in Egypt was to save his family. And the brothers don't realize that either. And so, because all these random things seem to be going wrong, they just assume that God is punishing them for what they did to Joseph. Look at how the brothers react to what's happening in verse 21. They say to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come on us. And then Reuben, the oldest son, he chimes in, verse 22, and he says, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. 
Now we must give an accounting for his blood. The brothers here aren't shaking their fist at God. They aren't accusing God of forgetting them. They are hanging their heads in shame and sorrow. Because everything is randomly going wrong, they assume that God has deliberately abandoned them, that God is deliberately punishing them, and that it must have been due to sin in their past. And things from their perspective just seem to get worse. They're on their way home, minus Simeon, probably thinking to themselves, oh man, dad's going to flip his lid when he sees that Simeon isn't with us. And then in verse 27, one of the brothers, just one at this point, he discovers uh, that the bag of silver that he used to pay for his grain is still in his grain sack, which essentially means that he's accidentally stolen a whole bag of silver. You know, they've already been accused of being spies, now they're going to be accused of being thieves. And all the brothers freak out, they're trembling with fear, and again, they assume that God is punishing them somehow. Verse 28, they turn to each other and they say, what is this that God has done to us? Little do they know that when Joseph ordered their grain sacks to be filled in verse 25, he also ordered their silver to be returned. But they don't know that. They just assume that God's punishing them. They get home and they tell their dad, Jacob, the story in verses 29 to 34, how the Lord of the land treated them like spies, took Simeon hostage and wants them to come back with Benjamin if they want more grain. At which point, in verse 35, everything hits the fan. They all open up their sacks of grain and they all find the silver in their grain sack. And to make matters worse, Jacob, their dad, flips his lid. Verse 36, you've deprived me of my children. Joseph's no more, Simeon's no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben pipes up in verse 37, he tells Jacob, you can trust me with Benjamin, I'll bring him back, you can kill my own two kids if I don't. But Jacob refuses. Verse 38, my son will not go down there with you, his brother's dead, he's the only one left, if harm comes to him on the journey you're taking, you'll bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow. And that's where the chapter ends. Utter despair and despondency. They've all hung their heads in shame and sorrow, and the question of the moment is, where is God? For the brothers specifically, they aren't accusing God of forgetting about them, but they are assuming that God is punishing them for what they did to Joseph. But we know that that's not true. As the reader, we have the big picture. Unlike the brothers, we know that the grain master was not some random tyrant, but was Joseph their brother. Unlike the brothers, we know that this grain master Joseph burst into tears in verse 24 when he heard them talk about, with regret, about what they did to him, their little brother. Unlike the brothers, we know that Joseph, when he filled their sacks of grain, returned their bags of silver. And unlike the brothers, we know that God is using everything that they think is going wrong to save their entire family. God's not punishing them, He's saving them. It looks like punishment 
from their perspective, but it's not. Now, I have to be clear here because I'm using the word punish in a very specific way. When I say punish, I specifically mean to make someone pay the exact price for what they did wrong. That's what I mean by punishment. So if you break a million dollar Ming vase, your punishment is to pay a million dollars. Now, in my mind, punishment is different to discipline. Punishment is paying for what you did wrong. Discipline is being corrected for what you did wrong. Now, you can disagree with my definitions, but those are the two different things I'm talking about here. And there's a world of difference between them. Under these definitions, you technically don't punish your children, most of the time at least. If your five-year-old somehow breaks your $2,000 TV, you don't demand $2,000 from them. You discipline them, you try to correct their behavior, but most of the time, you don't punish them. You don't demand that they pay the exact price for what they did wrong. But you see, when you look at Joseph's brothers, that's exactly what they think is happening to them because of what they did to Joseph. Look, at, look again at what they say in verse 21. Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. We dealt out distress on Joseph, and that's why distress has come on us. God's making us pay for the distress we caused Joseph by giving us distress. And Reuben pretty much says the same thing in verse 22. Now we must give an accounting for Joseph's blood, he says. We took Joseph's life by selling him into slavery. Joseph's blood is worth X, and now God is demanding that we pay X. We are being punished. And that, as a matter of fact, is justice. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But this is not how God operates with His people. It's not how He dealt with Joseph's brothers, and he not, it's not how He deals with us today if we are His people. And at this point, you might be wondering, how can God do that? Don't the brothers deserve to pay for what they did to Joseph? Isn't God a God of justice? Yes, He is, but He's also a God of grace and mercy. You see, on the cross, God's justice and His mercy met. On the cross, God punished Jesus so that He wouldn't have to punish us. God punished Jesus so that He could show mercy to us. On the cross, Jesus paid the full price of our sin because we couldn't. So if you're in Christ and you're going through hardship and difficulty and you're reminded of things you've done in your past, you can be confident that God's not punishing you. He might be disciplining you, He might be correcting you, but He's not punishing you. He's not making you pay for your sin because Jesus has already paid for all your sin. There is no sin 
he hasn't paid for. He's covered the whole bill. He signed the check in his blood. There's no more to pay. God is not punishing you when your life is hard. And so that's the final thing we see in this story. God's in control when life is hard, and God's not punishing you when life is hard. And this gives us the answer to the question we asked at the beginning. If you're in Christ and you're going through a season of hardship, where your life is really hard for no particular reason, and you're asking the question, where is God? You can be confident of the answer. He's with you. God is with you when life is hard. He hasn't accidentally forgotten you. He hasn't deliberately abandoned you. He's not punishing you. When your life is hard, He's with you. And this means actually a lot to me in my life right now. These are not cold and distant ideas. A few weeks ago, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And on Thursday, he had emergency surgery to get a large chunk of his jaw cut out. And last Sunday after church, uh, my whole family got together to pray for my dad before his surgery. And we prayed, God, we know you're in control. We know you're good to us. We know you're with us. Please heal our dad. For me, I personally don't struggle with the question, is God in control? But I do struggle with the question, is God punishing me when my life is hard? I've been in hospital a bunch of times before. I've asked myself that question every time. And so I found myself asking the same question for my dad. But I know that the answer is no. God is not punishing my dad because my dad is in Christ. And that means that Christ has paid for all his sin on the cross. We went to visit my dad on Friday, and he had his good old well-worn Bible with him on his bed. And one of the nurses in dad's ward just so happened to be a Christian, and she picked up dad's Bible. And she read out for us Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6, her favorite verse in the Bible. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. It was just beautifully timed and it was a beautiful reminder to me that I can trust in God because he's with me. He's with me and he's with my dad even when life is hard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a good and gracious God. We thank you that you are in control, that you, our lives are in your hands, and that when we're going through hardship in our lives, you're not punishing us. You care about us. You're with us. Please remind us of these things. Please comfort us in our pain and in our sorrow and in our hardship and help us to look to Jesus and look to the cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
God is with us when life is hard and he has not forgotten us in our hardship. So we're going to praise him now through singing to him. Please stand with us. <laughs> 